Take his mask and shut I ain't wearing it no more Y'all look at me like I'm from Mars When I don't wear it in the store Don't even try to make me put it on Or I'm walking out the door Take his mask and shut I ain't wearing it no more I've been shopping in this place for almost 15 years And I've seen all kinds of viruses But I've never lived in fear Now I know that Corona's real And it probably ain't a lot to ask But I ain't a bank robber and I ain't the Lone Ranger and I don't want to wear this mask. Take this mask and shove it. I ain't wearing it no more. Y'all look at me like I'm the devil when I don't wear it in the store. Don't even try to make me put it on or I'm walking out the door. Take this mask and shove it. I ain't wearing it no more. COVID-19's a real bad dude and they say there ain't no cure. Hydroxychloroquine or a new vaccine, I just can't be sure. Think I'll drink a little shine every morning when I start my day. Might not kill the virus, but it'll give me the courage to say, Take this mask and shove it. Corona needs to be gone. My woman stays home, spends all my money on Amazon. I just want to hug everybody like I did before. So take this plague and shove it. We ain't taking it no more And take this mask and shut No, honey, I got it right here I told you I was going to put it on It's right here, I'm wearing it I ain't going without it Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Armchair Survivalist. Today is October the 17th in the year 2021. My name is Kurt Wilson. I'm the Armchair Survivalist. Welcome to my show. If you go to armchairsurvivalist.com, any of the pages there, scroll down to the bottom and it tells you all the different ways to listen. Now, you can always go to armchairsurvivalist.com, click on the chat room, and you can listen to me live when I'm broadcasting on Sundays. You don't have to uh, log in. You don't have to communicate to anybody. You can just go there. The page automatically loads to my show. I am on every podcast venue known to man. iHeartRadio, Podbean, Anchor, TuneIn, FM, Stitcher, Google, Spotify. I mean, I got so many different things here. It's ridiculous. I can't even go through all of them. We uh, are broadcast on Global Star 3 satellite. And in fact, I have a little 24-7 feed right there. You'll see when you scroll down, you know, ways to listen, you'll see the little satellite dish moving backwards and forwards or side to side. And uh, it says a live feed right there. And you can click on either of those, and you can listen in a chat room, like I just said. Now, if you want, you can listen on your phone. This is not toll-free. It's area code 641-741-0371. That's 641-741-0371. This is a free service, so sometimes the number's not up. Sometimes it transfers to another number, but they'll tell you, okay, anytime you call in there. Now, if you miss the show and you want to listen to the current show, you can... Uh, 
In fact, there's a little box and it says, listen 24 hours a day to the recent show of the Armchair Survivalist. Click here. You do that and that's the recent show. So let's say today you didn't hear it, but Monday you want to hear it. You click on there. Okay. It's real simple. Or on the left-hand side of any of my pages, you'll see the little black and white nipper dog listening to the RCA Victor gramophone. Click on that. That'll take you to a page of all my shows for the current year. And you just pick a date and click on that and you can hear that show or download that show. I've got it covered. The only thing I'm no longer on is shortwave. As far as I know, I've been told that there are some stations that are broadcasting me, rebroadcasting me, just just as a filler, which is fine. They've got some blank spaces. They can put me out there. Today is kind of a special day in my life because this is my 40th wedding anniversary. Angie and I were married 40 years ago. It's interesting. 40 years being married to the same person. And you know, you couldn't do it if they weren't a friend of yours. Angie's a friend of mine, and I'm a friend of hers. We bitch at each other. We fight with each other. We help each other. We sympathize with each other (laughs) when we're in pain. And we were looking at some pictures yesterday. I don't know if I told you guys, but Angie's mother died a couple weeks back. All the uh, siblings went together and and sent us all of the pictures that her mother had accumulated over her life. And I'm looking at these pictures, and I'm I'm looking back when my son was uh, seven months old, and there's my wife, and there's me, and I'm going, holy crap, I actually had a a body. I I actually had my shirt hung straight down instead of a big lump in front of it like my belly does now. And, And hers was the same way, so, oh my lord. But anyway, this is our 40th wedding anniversary. You know, it's funny. We, I met her at a uh, rooming house I was uh, running in Los Angeles years ago. When I first met her, I said, holy crap, how could anybody stand her? <laughs> next thing you know, I'm married. Oh, well. You know, things happen. But we spent the next 40 years with one hell of an adventure. I was a dowser. So we moved to Grass Valley, California. And I worked with a water well drilling company. And then when that went belly up, we, just, we cut wood. I would follow the trees, limb them, round them, split them, and Angie and I would deliver them. And we did that for a while, too. And then we sold artwork on street corners for a while. And then we sold seafood for a while. And then uh, I went through my gunsmithing training. After the first 100,000 revolvers that I worked on, I opened up my business. And for 25 years, I was a master gunsmith. And all during that time, we together, and she was my helpmate, I would pity a grizzly bear that angered her. I have seen her, believe me, go against uh, somebody twice her size who insulted me. We have our backs. We have each other's backs. It's, it's that simple. Anybody screwed with her would probably not be able to screw with anyone else for the rest of this lifetime. Anybody screwed with me would wish they were dead. But that's what we do. You know, that's how you make sure that this person is your ally. And Angie is definitely my ally, and I'm definitely her ally. And people can see that. It's a unique phenomenon. Some of you should try it. Some of you shouldn't try it. It it takes a certain mentality. You have to have the willingness to be ethical. This is the key thing. You can't go into a relationship with what, what is commonly referred to as baggage. It just doesn't work. You have to be clean as possible. We're going to be talking about this show. This is going to be the 21 precepts. If you don't qualify to follow each one of these precepts, your any relationship you have is, is, is already a failure. We made it work one way or another. Many of our friends are like, how the hell could have you guys stay together? Well, it's because... It's an adventure. And I told her when we got married, you know, we might not be rich, but I'll give you one hell of an adventure. And then, yes, it's been an adventure. And she's been right there by my side. She is the goal that every man 
wants. Yeah, you know, when I was young, I said, you know what, I want to, I want to marry a six-foot-tall redhead built like a brick uh, outhouse, so to speak. I did that for five years, and then I realized, you know what, there's nothing there except the physicalness. So we split ways, and and then I said, I don't want anything else. I don't want no more females. I'm I'm done playing this this marriage game, this long term relationship game. And the next thing you know, you not I'm not looking for it. You're not looking for it. All of a sudden, bam! It slaps you up alongside the head, and you realize, you know, I might as well play the game with somebody. And it's fun when you got somebody who plays the same game. It's and I've met, had many guys come in and say, we're talking about guns, right? And and uh, and the guy goes, well, I got to go ask my wife if I if if I could if I should buy a gun or if I could buy. It. I said, look, I'll tell you about my wife. She told me, I don't care what you buy as long as you can sell it for more than you paid for it. That includes cars, houses, guns. It doesn't matter. And that's that's what I appreciate. So anyway, no need to get all modeling and mushy and all of this crap. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about Angie. At times, it doesn't seem like it to her, but it is. this has been well worth it to me. All right, enough of that. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the American society that's happening. We all know it's going down the tubes. It's, it's not my personal evaluation. It's a statement of fact. <clears throat> when you have whole sections of society threatening other sections of society, when you have the elites training children in their public schools to be sexual deviates. They're doing this on purpose for the complete destruction of the American way. When you have the politicians bringing in criminal aliens, wholesale, not just, you know, 50 here, 20 here, we're talking 100,000 here, a quarter million there. When you're purposely deleting and diluting the American way of life, you know this society is going down the tubes. This this is not something that we can take an eraser to and just clean. We have to start from scratch. We have to start over. And we have to start with ourselves. This is not, you know, you're not going to force somebody to become ethical. You're not going to force somebody to become sane. You can punish people who do wrong, but punishing is not teaching, except with a little bit of pain involved. What we have to do is basically instruct our children, starting with the children, and this is how communists have won every country. They start with the children. They're starting here with the children in the United States. As long as, as young as, oh, six, seven years old, they're wanting to teach them perversion, sexual perversion. They're teaching them. I have the, the um, sex ed course for the next year. I have that. And it, this is all through the United States. This is not just in some schools in California or New Jersey. This is federal. And if you think your children are exempt from this, let me tell you something. I'm in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, world known for uh, right-wing patriots. Go to the library. You'll find they have books that they put in, in glass showcases to uh, get people's attention. What do they have in those showcases? Books on how to have homosexual sex when you're 12 and 13 years old. How to understand the genders that are being approved and um, how, how people are participating in these 140 or 50 different types of, of sexual genders. How science doesn't really matter as long as you decide that you want to be something else, you can be something else. So this is what we're having everywhere in the United States. If you want to change, you have to change the stuff. You have to physically do it. 
Life is a participation sport. It is not a sport that you sit back and watch like a football game. Life is a, is a sport that you've got to get into it, get your hands dirty and play it. And you've got to be in charge. And if you aren't in charge of your children, you you have failed this society. You need to make sure that your children are being grounded in the concept of morals. And that's why we're going to be doing a show now. And this is a pre-recorded show. It's called The Way to Happiness. And, and I'll talk about it in this recording. But this is basic, basic building blocks of freedom and morality. It is that simple. I'll talk again at the end of this. No man is an island. We all are going to have to survive or sink together to a degree. And it's best if you know how to choose your people and choose your friends. And The Way to Happiness is a book. If you can look at it from one viewpoint, in it's for me. It's to help me get my stuff together. It's to help me survive better. It's to help me be a more moral and ethical person. And you can look at it as, I know what's right and wrong and how to weed out the dangerous people from my life. You can use it in that sense where you can look at others around you and say this guy is not a moral person this guy is not a safe person he's going to get me in trouble he's going to get me killed that's what this book is for also not just to help improve yourself but to help you guard against the wrong type of people coming into your environment coming into your life anyway with what's going on in the world you don't need me to tell you what's going on we have two political parties entrenched in america one of them is now sunk into the stages of communism and the other is so cowardly that they're actually embellishing the whole concept of failure and those are called the Republican Party. Too many things are going on that are causing the society as a whole to degenerate faster and faster. We have the basic, I call them deminists, you know, combination Democrat, communist, socialist, they're all the same thing. We have them firmly entrenched and in control of nearly every facet of life in America. And this is from city councils, county commissioners, state politics, federal politics, and their job is to lessen us, to make us weaker and more subservient to them. And to do that, they have to destroy everything that built this nation. The morals, the ethics, the personal integrity, the uh, self-sufficiency. To that end, they have promoted sexual perversion. They promoted uh, criminal acts against separate races. The government is importing into this country criminal aliens from the southern border, sworn enemies called Muslim. They're not bringing in the Christians that are being decapitated and destroyed. They're actively killing off the Christians worldwide. They're doing this in such a perverse and disgusting and degrading manner. I'm personally astounded Christians haven't stood up like we did before and gone to war against them. Not just to stop them or to encapsulate them or to control them, but to wipe the evil cult off of the face of this earth. But they're doing this, our politicians are doing this in this country to destroy us. But as long as we can maintain our individual integrity, we can withstand their onslaughts. We can withstand their attacks because we are that which founded this nation. As long as we realize we have to maintain our wholesomeness, our integrity, and our ethics. And that's what this book is about. It's called The Way to Happiness. Personally, I wouldn't have chosen that name. To me, it is the way to your survival. So I want you to go ahead and enjoy it and uh, apologize for the a lot of skips in there and a lot of weird gurgles and, and, uh, and the like. The sound quality is, is okay in most of it, but not in all of it. So. 
There is a booklet. It was written by 1981 by L. Ron Hubbard. It has nothing to do with any church. has nothing to do with any religion. It's called The Way to Happiness, A Common Sense Guide to Better Living. But I'm going to tell you the truth behind this booklet. It's 21 precepts in it. You know, like the Ten Commandments, right? Well, we've screwed the world up so bad, now we've got to have 21. These precepts change lives. They change how you function in life. They change how you look at people in life. What they do is they organize your thoughts because they're very specific. But here's the thing that I don't know why he called it the way to happiness because it should be called the truth to survival because to the degree you follow these precepts you survive anybody can survive in the gutter. You know, I kind of like to have a house and a bed, you know, and a few bucks here and there. So the better you understand these things that I'm going to talk about and the better that you perform them and require those around you to perform them, the higher level of survival you and your loved ones will have. It's very simple and it's very cut and dried. Some of this I'm going to read to you. Some of this I'm going to say myself. These books have gone to every government in the world. They have gone to every school in the world. They have gone into the jungles in South America. So this has nothing to do. Religious beliefs, true joy and happiness are valuable. If one does not survive, no joy and no happiness are obtainable. Trying to survive in a chaotic, dishonest, and generally immoral society is difficult. Any individual or group seeks to obtain from life what pleasure and freedom from pain that they can. Your own survival can be threatened by the bad actions of others around you. Yes, it's talking about your actions. But it's also telling you, you have the right to make sure that those people you interact with will, will not negatively affect your survival. You have that right. Your own happiness can be turned to tragedy and sorrow by the dishonesty and misconduct of others. I'm sure you can think of instances of this actually happening. Such wrongs reduces one's survival and impairs one's happiness. You are important to other people. You are listened to. You can influence people without too much trouble. Using this booklet, you can help them survive and lead happier lives. While no one can guarantee that anyone else can be happy, their chances of survival and happiness can be improved, and with theirs, yours will be. It is in your power to point the way to a less dangerous and happier life. See, that's the key here, is it? and he's talking about, is survival. Number one, and oh my Lord, I'm astounded that so many people are so stupid on this category. Take care of yourself. Duh. Get care when you're ill. Now look, you have no idea how many people call me on a daily basis saying, yeah, I'm all, I'm really sick and I'm wondering if you got something there that you can send me to make me not sick. Well, okay, here's the thing. Somebody calls me from Michigan and tells me how they're sick and they have this, they have the uh, real bad cold or they have uh, any other problem and I'm thinking, okay, so if you order this now, it won't ship out till tomorrow and you're not going to get it for three days, four days. What are you doing in the meantime? Well, I'm, I'm, I got to go to work because I need the money. So you're going to work. You're not sleeping. You're not resting. You're not taking any anything to help you, but you're going to work. Get care when you are ill. When they're ill, even with communicable diseases, people often do not isolate themselves or seek proper treatment. This, as you can easily see, tends to put you at risk. Now, do you understand these words? Every single word that I'm saying here. Here's the interesting thing about it being a broadcaster. I pick my words. So when I use a certain type of words, a certain grouping of words, 
It's because I want you to understand exactly what I'm saying. And they, and and Mr. Hubbard did the same thing. This, as you can easily see, tends to put you at risk. Insist when someone is ill that if he or she takes the proper precautions and gets proper care. I got to be careful because I don't want to upset anybody. But well, let's do it this way. I worked as a kid in a restaurant, and we had a one-legged alcoholic Mexican dishwasher. Really nice guy. Literally, one leg. He was always drinking beer. One day, I get there at 5 in the morning. One day, I hear him coughing back there. And for the next four hours, I'm hearing him cough. Finally, I go back there. Now, he stands by the dishwashing machine. This is all This is all, all he did all day was wash dishes. And I said, what's wrong with you? How come you coughing so much? He goes, oh, my TB is acting up. I go, well, you're, you're, you're what? My tuberculosis is acting up. I got it in Mexico years ago. Most of the time, I, I keep it down by taking taking these strange, whatever the drugs are. And the owner of the business was standing there when he said that. To him, it was no big deal. From where his country, he comes from, Mexico, they didn't think much about getting sick. She instantly locked the restaurant down and called Sacramento Health Department, told them that she had a, a food employee that had tuberculosis that was active. So because of his failure to get care when he was ill, everyone there had the possibility of coming down with tuberculosis. That's part one. So when you're ill, do something about it Immediately. Do not say, well, let's see what I'll be like in a day or four and realize whether you subscribe to the bacteriological concept of illnesses is irrelevant. See, there are some people that say, no, it's all in your head. I don't care if you agree with it or not. That's irrelevant because what happens is if you have a disease, a communicable disease of any kind, everything from a sexually transmitted disease to tuberculosis, you don't go somewhere where you can possibly give it to somebody else. The second part is keep your body clean. Now, that's rather these are rather astounding subjects to a lot of people. Keep my body clean? I take a shower once a week. We're taking this in different tact. I'm reading you this and giving you these things, these precepts, under the concept not that you violate them, because you'd never do that, but that people around you violate them. Keep your body clean. How many times have you gone in a men's room, some guy goes over to the urinal, uses the urinal, puts it away, and walks out the door without ever washing his hands? How many times? When I'm in a... In a public bathroom and I and, and I, this happened last week I was in the bathroom and there was a looked like about a six-year-old boy and a three and a four-year-old boy were in there and they were all using the urinals and when they got done the uh, little kid was starting to walk out the front door and the other kids were, were going to let him I said that go back here and wash your hands now so they all went and washed their hands you are responsible for the people around you to make sure they don't affect your survival in a negative manner. So keep your body clean. I mean, this is the thing that's that's important. And if you can break it down to something very clinical and simple, bacteria grows on biological surfaces. If you have filth on your body, now everybody gets dirty when they're working or they're or they're exercising or what have you. But you know, you got to clean that off. What is bo? Body odor. Go work like crazy. You don't have any deodorant on, and you start smelling like a, a bad spaghetti dinner. That's bacterial growth. So. You need to wash it off. Bacteria grows. And then I've seen the full volume of what happens when people don't wash themselves, when they don't clean themselves. There are hundreds and thousands of people that die every year from bacteriological infestations and viral infestations all over their body because they didn't wash, they didn't clean. So you know what? It doesn't take much. I remember living for 30 days in an area we we had no soap. We had plenty of water. You know what we used? We used sand. That is rough as hell to wash yourself with, but it works.
Preserve your teeth. There I have been so much research lately to prove and explain how plaque buildup. Plaque, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, is bacteria. To show how much plaque buildup can go directly. You have sublingual glands under your tongue. So plaque buildup, this bacteria, can release into your sublinguals and it can go into your blood and give you blood poisoning and heart attacks and on and on and on. You know what? It's not going to break your arm to brush your teeth after every meal or at least once in the morning, once at night. We all carry, my wife, my son, myself, we carry these little Swiss Army knives that have a toothpick built into them. At least I pick my teeth. You know, I went to get my teeth cleaned two years ago and the dentist looks and you know, he's looking at you and he's looking in there and he's looking and he goes, your teeth are pretty clean. They don't need cleaning. They just need kind of polishing. What? Did you just have them clean? I said, no. Do you floss all the time? I said, no. I got fat fingers and my mouth isn't that big. Contrary to what people say about So I have problems getting in there. And he said, well, I don't understand. Your tooth spacing is good. There's no plaque between them. I said, I pick my teeth. Oh, that's not good for you. Really? Why don't we go back to what you just said? Picking your teeth is good for you as long as you don't jab the hell out of your gums and cause all kinds of bleeding. And I brush my teeth twice a day with our toothpaste that we have. That, that Survival Enterprises sells is an organic paste that not only kills bacteria, it removes plaque. It has cured gum diseases, all kinds of problems inside a mouth. It's got colloidal silver, colloidal minerals, oregano oil in it. We have a toothpaste. So take care of your teeth. Preserve your teeth is what he's saying. So preserve your teeth. If nothing else, after you're done eating, chew some gum. Try to get gum without aspartame in it, though. Fourth section, eat properly. How many of you out there have all these weird diseases, and if you sat down and tracked them back, it's because you ate or drank crap, and you continue to eat or drink crap? Eat properly. You can figure it out. If you eat properly, in other words, don't eat crap food, and you know what I mean when I say crap food, because I don't have to define for you, each one of you, what crap food is in your universe. You know what it is. You eat, the more you eat of that, the less able your body is to regenerate itself, and your brain is, is an organ, and the organ has to regenerate itself, and it has to be fed properly. If you don't eat properly, you're not going to feed your organs properly, so they're not going to work properly, and you just end up being a Democrat. And number five, this has been proven numerous, numerous times. Now, we're on part one, take care of yourself, all right? So this is the fifth part of take care of yourself. Get rest. Rest is the solar panel to your battery of your body. You go to sleep, and it's weird how it works. I can see people who don't get enough sleep. Your body has to go into a specific type of shutdown phase so that it can regenerate and fix the stuff you broke during the day. I have had massive amounts of exercise and pain in my body, and I go to sleep, and my body heals it up during the time I sleep. You need to get rest. Some people, I can't sleep over four hours, I'm told. That's fine. And there are some people who their clock is so screwed up, they'll sleep 10 to 12 hours. You don't need 10 to 12 hours. That's as bad as not getting enough sleep. You can physically harm your body by getting not enough sleep or too much sleep. So that's number one. Take care of yourself. Get care when you're ill. Keep your body clean. Preserve your teeth. Eat properly and get rest. And the key here is, remember, we're looking at this not that you violate any of these precepts. It's that those around you do, and they affect you. You have the right to say, dude, your breath smells like a donkey's butt. Maybe you need to have a a dentist look at it or something. Or here, look, try some of uh, Survival Enterprises toothpaste. Or maybe bathe once in a while. Survival Enterprises also sells Calban soap. SurvivalEnterprises.com. You can see everything we, we have. Nutritional products, all of that good stuff. Number two is be temperate. Notice I didn't say be tolerant. I said be temperate. First part of being temperate. Do not take harmful drugs. There are drugs that are necessary. 
If you have a disease that can be controlled by certain drugs, or if you need to take an antibiotic to kill off an infection, yes, these are not harmful drugs. Maybe in the long run they could be, but right away, no, you need them. Do not take harmful drugs. People who take drugs do not see the real world in front of them. They're not really there. And this is vital when you're dealing with anyone who takes psychiatric drugs. They're not there yet. They're not there. People who are taking heavy, heavy doses of antihistamine aren't really there either because they're they're sleepy. They're tired. So when you have people who are taking drugs that are around you and affecting you and could affect you and could affect your survival, you have the right to not be there. You have the right to tell them not to do that. Be temperate. Do not take harmful drugs. And you also know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the crap that has been released into the public so that we can become controllable. Those of you who have read 1984 think SOMA. Second part, do not take alcohol to excess. This is, again, all gauged towards survival, all gauged to survival. So do not take alcohol to excess. You're not alert. It impairs your ability to react. Nothing wrong with having a drink now and then. There's nothing wrong with act. You know, if you want to if you want to go and have, drink a bunch of beers with the guys, fine, as long as you're not driving and the guy that is driving ain't drinking. Okay, so much for the be temperate. Number three, this is the big one. Do not be promiscuous. When I was a kid, when I was a kid, oh, long time ago... Being promiscuous wasn't a death sense. It pretty much is nowadays. Sex is the means by which the race projects itself into the future through children and the family. A lot of pleasure and happiness can come from sex. Nature intended it that way so the race would go on, but misused or abused, it carries with it heavy penalties and punishments. Nature seems to have intended it that way also. The first part of don't be promiscuous is be faithful to your sexual partner. Now, you notice how he's not evaluating, saying, to your wife or your girlfriend. He's just very simple. Be faithful to your sexual partner. Unfaithfulness on the part of a sexual partner can heavily reduce one's survival. History and the newspapers carry floods of instances of the violence of human passions aroused by unfaithfulness. Guilt is the milder evil. Jealousy and vengeance are the greater monsters. It's all very well to speak of being civilized and uninhibited and understanding. I'm sorry, but no talk will mend ruined lives. A feeling of guilt is nowhere near as sharp as a knife in the back or ground glass in the soup. Those are from newspaper articles. Additionally, there is a question of health, and that's what I was talking about. If you don't insist upon faithfulness from a sexual partner, you lay yourself open to disease. This is the thing. I have history with a friend of mine who subscribes to the modern lack of morals of the public school system, which is have sex with anything that says sure. Now, he's male, so he has sex with females. I mean, at least he's that far, that, that ahead of the game. Unfortunately, and without meaning to sound flippant, there are maybe 50 to 75 percent of the active, sexually active people between the ages of, and I think it was 16 and 25 have sexually transmitted diseases. And that can be anything from chlamydia to CLAP to HIV to AIDS to who knows. So you really, really need to be careful and you need to require from your sexual partner faithfulness. That means you don't go out to a bar, pick something up, go home, have sex. Two nights later, go to the bar, pick something else up, go home, have sex. That might be civilized. It is not part of survival in any way, shape, or form. The problems of sexual misbehavior are not new. The powerful religion of Buddhism in India vanished in the 7th century. It was because of sexual promiscuity in his monasteries. And I remember reading ancient works on how the, the women from the cities would come up 
and give themselves to the Buddhist monks. Long story, but ended up causing way too many problems, and they and and that's why Buddhism totally disappeared in India in the seventh century. The urge of the moment can become the sorrow of a lifetime. Literally, you have to look at it like that. You meet some really hot chick at a bar or a club or a dance or anywhere, and within an hour, she's saying, you know, I, I'd like to crawl in a sack with you. Well, you have to look at the purpose of doing so. You want to just crawl in a sack with somebody? There are repercussions for every single thing you do in life. And if you think, hey, I think I'll crawl in a sack with her, maybe we make a relationship, and who knows, maybe we'll get married. Would you marry somebody who'd crawl in a sack with you in the first hour they met you? You have to be decent about this. You have to be faithful about it. And that's the thing that's important. Number four, love and help children. And this is something that is so missing in today's society. I am disgusted to the max. Today's children will become tomorrow's civilization. Bringing a kid in the world today is a little bit like dro dropping one into a tiger's cage. Children can't handle their environment and they have no real resources. They need love and help to make it. You owe your child. I hear all the time about how the kid owes the parent. No, you owe your child. Of course, my son, 28, he owes me. But you owe your baby. It's a very delicate problem with children. Some try to raise the child the way they themselves were raised. Others attempt the exact opposite. Many hold to an idea that children should just be let to grow up on their own. None of this stuff guarantees any success. There's even some psychosis in this society that in some magical way, uh, the nerves of the child will ripen as he grows older and, and, and he'll become a moral, well-behaving adult. That is the perverted blathering of psychiatry. This is our civilization. You can see right now, you can see right now the effects of the parents' failings on children. A, a child's a blank slate. You write the wrong things on it, they'll say the wrong things. But unlike a slate, a child can begin to do the writing. The problem is complicated, the fact that while most children are capable of great decency, a few are born insane. And today, some are even born as drug addicts. But such cases are an unusual few. Unfortunately, they're not anymore. This book was written in 1981. Almost every child born in hospitals in Detroit are dependent on drugs, either recreational or psychological drugs. You can't buy the kid off with an overwhelm of toys and possessions or smother and protect the kid. You can't do that. One is to make up his mind what he's trying to get the child to become. This is modified by several things. A, what the child basically can become due to inherent makeup and potential, meaning the kid's not going to be the great white hope in the boxing ring if, if, it's, if it's a black female and a dwarf. B, what the child really wants to become. Children actually get an idea at an early age of what part of their philosophical makeup they want to follow. Many, many say, I want to help. So they become, they want to become cop or fireman or a doctor. And some say, I want to help animals. They become a veterinarian. And some say they just want to live at home with mom and dad never do anything the rest of their lives they become community activists but remember that whatever these all add to the child will not survive well unless he or she eventually becomes self-reliant and very moral and that is the key here if you take this book of 21 precepts and you teach your children these, your child will survive better than the kid that gets turned loose into the public school system. Whatever one's affection for the child, remember that the child cannot survive well in the long run if he or she does not have his or her feet put on the way to survival. It is no accident if your child goes wrong. The contemporary society is tailor-made for a child's failure. Society will fail your child if left to society. So the key thing is that you love and help children. My viewpoint, and I was raised 
by the Indians. I was raised on Klamath. I'm Cherokee, raised in the Klamath Reservation, blood brother to the Hopi and the Yaki. And there's a saying that a man is every child's father. What that means is the society, the human beings, the, the Cherokee, they believe that a child is always learning. And every man in that immediate society has something to teach the child. So if nobody is around and the child does something wrong, it's whoever is there. It's his responsibility to teach the child how to do it right. This is called survival. And this is not anything new. But it seems that putting it in a booklet form is. Number five, honor and help your parents. From a child's point of view, parents are sometimes hard to understand. There are differences between generations, but truthfully, this is no barrier. When one is weak, it is a temptation to take refuge in subterfuges and lies. It is this which builds the wall. It doesn't matter what society we're in. Children will also always think that the parents are full of crap. Until they get older and then they realize, oh my God, I've turned into my father or I've turned into my mother. It's because you all of a sudden realize they weren't full of crap. They were teaching a reality. One cannot overlook the fact that almost always parents are acting from a very strong desire to do what they believe to be best for the child. Children are indebted to their parents parents for their upbringing if the parents did so. There could come a time when it's the turn of the younger generation to care for their parents. In spite of all, one must remember that they are the only parents one has, and as such, no matter what, one should honor them and help them. The way to happiness includes being on good terms with one's parents or those who brought one up. On the reservation, this is something that was taught very, very strict. We honored our parents, our ancestors, our relatives. We honored them. I don't mean you kissed their butts and did everything they said. I mean you did, you never showed disrespect. I never showed disrespect to my, my mother, ever. I remember coming home on uh, leave from the Navy, and I'm sitting at the dinner table, and my mother's talking. My brother said, I don't remember what he said, something like, would you shut the hell up? I'm trying to, I'm trying to listen. I think the TV was on in the other room. I backhanded him so hard that six feet away, he hit the wall. I don't allow allow disrespect to my parents. I never allowed it. Of course, my son respects me because I'm still alive. He's heard all my stories and he's known what hell and tribulation I've gone through. And for me to actually still be alive deserves respect. Every single day, I see violations of these 21 precepts that's in this booklet called The Way to Happiness. I talked about five of them so far. Take care of yourself, number one. Number two, be temperate. Number three, don't be promiscuous. And I like to give examples of each violations of each one of these so you get an idea how this can really strike home. Number four, love and help children. Number five, honor and help your parents. So I've done those. Here's how I want you to look at these. Not for yourself, because heaven forbid any of us would violate any of these common sense principles. But in comparison to those around you, if you took a volume knob, to, let's just picture this as a radio, and every person walks around with these two volume knobs on their chest. The left one is their personal integrity and how they how they follow, how well they follow these precepts. And the right-hand one is how well they'll survive in any given situation. Both of these knobs turn exactly the same manner and amount each time. So to the degree the people around you follow these precepts, to that degree they'll survive well, and you can trust them. See, that's the key. And this is how you n learn to choose your people. You choose your people around you by how well they can survive. This is a giant, never-ending cycle. How well you follow these, these precepts is how well you will survive in your own universe. And then how well other people follow these precepts is how well they'll survive in their universe. But everybody around you interacts with you, so they affect your survival as you affect their survival. When I'm talking about these, you look at these as I want the people around me to emulate these positive traits. And here's the other kicker. 
you not only have the right, you have the responsibility to require those that affect you to follow these precepts. If you live in a rooming house and one of the guys in the rooming house is a pig who stinks, is gross, leaves his crap everywhere, he's obviously violating a bunch of these precepts. Number one, at the least, take care of yourself. You have the right to say something to him. You don't need to go jumping on his crap. You know, you can talk to him kindly and see if there's something he doesn't understand about about why he should brush his teeth and bathe and wash his clothes. Maybe he doesn't understand how to do it. There are people who literally were not raised by their parents. As a matter of fact, 75% of the people in the United States aren't really raised by their parents. They're raised by the public school system, which wants only good socialistic robots. You have the right and the responsibility to require the people that affect you, that live with you, that work with you, that work for you. You have the right and the responsibility to have them follow these precepts. This is not some little cheesy pamphlet, okay? This is very, very articulate, and it changes lives. Number six, set a good example. Now, remember, of course, you want to copy these. You want to do these yourself, but you need to look around you, and you need to help people around you who aren't doing these things. Help them to them to one degree or another. Set a good example. There are many people one influences. This influence can be good or bad. People around you can't help but be influenced by your actions, by your words, by your actions. Your own survival chances will be bettered in the long run since others influenced will become less of a threat. This is why I say, yeah, they call this the way to happiness, but it's more like the way to optimum survival. Don't discount the effect you can achieve on others simply by mentioning these precepts and by showing yourself following them. That's what number six set a good example is. Number seven, seek to live with the truth. False data can cause one to make stupid mistakes. Now, do you get that? False data can cause one to make stupid mistakes. This is a vital one. Let me give you an exact example. That could be lies. That could be wrong research. Do you know to kill bacteria in food? It has to reach 160 degrees all the way through, like a piece of meat, chicken, beef, whatever. A company in Los Angeles was making an excellent type of pastrami. They had been told that to kill bacteria, only the surface of the meat needed to be 160 degrees, not the interior of the meat. So they were processing their pastrami at 160 degrees external temperature, not internal. There was four brothers that put every penny they owned into this company. Their first batch was released. It was a private label type thing. It was excellent. It was I had some. It tasted well. Unfortunately, people started getting sick. The FDA came in within a week and shut them down because they were not killing off bacteria properly. So seek to live with the truth. First, you have to find the truth. Your problems in life can only be solved if you have the truth. If you have a problem in life, I, I don't care what it is. If you can't change your tire, if you can't change your oil, if you can't sew, if you can't, and, and you're trying, but it just isn't working. There's false data there somewhere. What is true is what is true for you. No one has any right to force data onto you and command you to believe it or else. But that's what you get in the public schools. They force information onto you. And if you don't believe it, you're given a failing grade. You're not allowed to determine whether or not this data you receive is true. Same thing with the government. And here's the sad thing is you have these people in, in life that don't want the truth. All they want is to believe what they're told. These are known as robots. I've met some. I never thought they really existed. I thought it was a joke. But no, I've actually met some humans that literally can do nothing unless they're programmed. And if you ever ask them to think outside the box they would go into a catatonic state. So seek to live with the truth. Don't just take what somebody says as truth. This is why I have show notes. I say things to people, and I resent it 
if somebody goes, oh, yeah, I believe everything he says, I think they're fools. I always link to source. I can always tell you where you can find the truth of this, and you can verify it yourself. And that's what you should do. Like these idiots on Facebook all of the time, all the time, some government undercover agent comes out and says, hey, did you know blankety-blank-blank-blank? Did you know Kurt eats live babies? And all of a sudden, that goes viral. People say, oh, Kurt eats live babies. Not one of these 75,000 people that like that ever found out the truth. They just continued passing the lie on. Seek to live with the truth. The next part of that is do not tell harmful lies. Harmful lies are the product of fear, malice, and envy. They can drive people to acts of desperation. They can ruin lives. They create a kind of trap into which the teller and the target can both fall. Interpersonal and social chaos can result. Many wars begin because of harmful lies. One should learn to detect them and reject them. It doesn't say here, do not tell lies. It says, do not tell harmful lies. Like when your wife puts on a pair of skin-tight pants and says, does this make my butt look large? You would be expected to lie at that point. When you would come out and say, you know what, we need to uh, ban all private ownership of firearms because without private people owning firearms, life would be so much smoother and safer out here. That would be a harmful lie. Another one would be, if you vote for me, I will put two chickens in every pot and a car in every garage. That's a harmful lie. Or, if you take this drug, it would cure any mental problems you have. These are harmful lies. Saying to somebody that, go ahead and take the shovel, it, it shouldn't be that hard for you to, to uh, dig a hole out in the backyard. Knowing that the backyard is full of rocks. Now, you're actually lying to the person when you're telling them that. But why are you doing it? You want them to exercise and you want them to, sh to learn initiative, how they can dig around the rocks. So this is the thing. You have to be careful. The next part is do not bear false witness. There are considerable penalties connected with swearing or testifying to untrue facts. It's called perjury. False witness. This is the standard operating procedure for alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, the FBI, CIA, Department of Homeland Security, Department of Justice, every, every government agency there is. They're taught to perjure themselves. Which should show you, the people who are willing to do something like that, their inability to survive. Obviously, the way to happiness lives and lies along the road to truth. Number eight, do not murder. It doesn't say do not kill. That'd be insane. Most racists, from the most ancient time to the present, have prohibited murder and punished it heavily. Sometimes, this has been broadened to say, thou shalt not kill, when a later translation of the same work has found it to read, Thou shalt not murder. I read the Bible. I've read the Bible five times. I read it in Latin, and I've read translations of it in early North Semantic languages. And the Ten Commandments, the part that has been changed in English to be Thou shalt not kill, didn't say that. It basically would explain you should not take a life in malice or murder. A considerable amount of difference between these two words, kill and murder. A prohibition against killing would rule out self-defense. Self-defense is the basic right of all living creatures from a single-cell animal up to man. The stupid, the evil, and the insane seek to solve the real or imagined problems with murder. And they've been known to do it for no reason at all. Get behind any demonstratively effective program that handles this threat to mankind. This is a big threat. Your own survival could depend on it. No, your own survival does depend on it. The way to happiness does not include murdering or your friends, your family, or yourself being murdered, which is a redundancy, but this is a big thing now, is that the idea of killing wantonly has been desensitized in the world with games. Got shoot 'em up games. I, me and my friends play games on the internet, which we blow things up and kill creatures and, and each other sometimes, but we know the difference, see? But when you have people 
who continue playing these games. And then they go in the Air Force and they sit behind a desk with a joystick and they go, oh, look, this is so cool. This is just like playing Duke Nukem. <laughs> and you have a drone and you have a picture and you see 500 yards away, five or six human bodies and your boss says oh those are all terrorists cool <clears throat> and you kill them all well to you you're not doing anything you're just following an order it's been so desensitized that the concept of murder doesn't exist especially when an 11 year old boy says to his friend i don't like jenny i found this pocket knife that i, I got real sharp let's uh, take her outside behind the school and let's stab her till she's dead okay sure that's not make-believe that's real that that happened they got caught but they had no more thought about doing that than I did when I was a kid taking a magnifying glass and burning up a whole bunch of ants. They have no thoughts about it nowadays. People who think like this, you don't want around you. Number nine, don't do anything illegal. Now, good luck with that one. But here's the kicker. Illegal acts are those which are prohibited by official rules or law. Now, granted, my grandpa taught me don't let the law get in the way of common sense. But the key here is we're talking about illegal acts that's all we're not evaluating whether or not the act should be illegal just that it is they are the product of rulers legislative bodies and judges they're usually written down in law codes in a well-ordered society these are published and made known generally in a cloudy and often crime-ridden society one has to consult an attorney or be specially trained to know them all such a society will tell one that ignorance is no excuse for breaking the law welcome to america any member of society, however, has a responsibility, whether young or old, for knowing what that society considers to be an illegal act. He's talking here about illegal acts. An illegal act is not disobedience to some casual order like go to bed. It is an action which, if done, can result in punishment by the courts and state, which would inevitably be either fines or even imprisonment. Here's the thing that I learned a long time ago. You can accidentally do something that could be illegal. But when you are about to do something, I don't care what it is, and you, you have to ask yourself, should I do that? You already know the answer. Let me give you an example of how you can do something accidentally that's illegal. I had a friend in Modesto, California, who was a municipal court judge. He had a friend that was an attorney. During a court case, the defendant had been charged with a crime that hadn't been claimed since like 1897. Basically, his defense was, how is he supposed to know if he's doing anything illegal? I mean, this is so old, it's not even on the books. I mean, it's on the books, but who reads those books now? The case got thrown out of court, but the judge and the attorney got into an argument about laws. The attorney said, I'll bet you $100 that before, I'll take you to lunch, and before we come back from lunch, you will have broken a law. So the judge took that bet. So courthouse is downtown Modesto, so they're going to walk over to a nice restaurant. They stop off at a a place on the way, and the judge buys a pack of cigarettes. As they leave the little, the little uh, store where they bought, the judge bought the cigarettes, he tore off the the wrapper, the whole wrapper, not just tear the top off. Tore off the whole wrapper and threw it in the garbage, the cellophane wrapper. And the attorney goes, "Right there, you've broken federal law." He goes, "What? Littering? I put it in the garbage can? No. On the top of every cigarette pack is a tax stamp. There is a strip, an unwrapping strip." On the top of every cigarette pack, any of you out there smoking know exactly what I'm saying, that if you use that strip and you open the cigarette pack using that strip, it will purpose, it will intently tear the tax stamp in half to destroy it so it can never be reused again. And if you don't tear it in half, you violated a federal law. They got back to the courthouse and looked it up, and sure enough, there's a federal is uh, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms regulation. So you can inadvertently uh, perform an illegal act, but these aren't the ones that they're saying. 
The word do is in here. Don't do anything illegal. That's with intent. Anything you're trying to accomplish can usually be done in perfectly legal ways. The illegal route is a dangerous and time-wasting shortcut. Imagined advantages in committing illegal acts usually turn out not to be worth it. The state and government, and he means federal government, the state and government tends to be a rather unthinking machine. It exists and works on laws and codes of laws. It is geared to strike down through its channels at illegality. As such, it can be an implacable enemy, very adamant on the subject of illegal acts. When you realize or discover that those about you are committing illegal acts, you should do what you can to discourage it. You yourself, not even a party to it, can yet suffer because of it. Now, I won't tell you who this person was. He's extremely well-known. He's an old friend of mine. He worked in a bank, and he did wire transfers. This was an in a large international bank, and uh, he would come in in the morning, and he had a pile of wire transfer papers on what, the left-hand side of his desk that he would have to input each one into the computer, make sure it was processed, and then put it on the right-hand side. That's all he did. I mean, that's an oversimplification, but that's all he did. Somewhere in there, one of the employees had put a wire transfer using the wrong uh, bank codes. In other words, instead of going from business A to business B, it went from business A to employee B. So this person inadvertently transferred hundreds of thousands of dollars to an employee who was committing fraud. This was embezzlement. He did not know he was doing this, but he ended up doing five years in jail because of it. So you understand what I'm saying here is that just, you know, you get these people who, if smoking dope is illegal where you are, and you've got somebody who's your friend who's with you all the time smoking dope, I'm not saying it's good or bad, right or wrong. I'm saying it's illegal. He gets snagged, you're going to get snagged. In California, this happened to a friend of mine. He was driving another friend of his downtown Sacramento, and there was this beautiful girl on a street corner waving at him, so he pulls over. And the passenger got talking to him, to her. And the next thing you know, there's police swarming them. They take them both out of the car. They arrest them both. Turns out she was a prostitute, undercover uh, police officer. And the passenger had somehow alluded to he'd like to have sex with her or something. I don't remember the whole thing. But the first thing that happened was this friend of mine's car was taken away from him because he was part of it. He was driving. His car was confiscated. He couldn't get it back, period. It's called asset forfeiture. There are stories of people who own houses who rent them out to other people who end up growing marijuana in them and the government comes in and confiscates the house there are so many things that you can be you can suffer of because people around you are committing illegal acts again we're not talking about right or wrong just illegal acts make sure that children and people around you become informed of what is legal and what is illegal and make it known if by as little as a frown that you do not approve of illegal acts those who commit them even when they get away with it are yet weakened before the might of the state. The way to happiness does not include the fear of being found out. See, that's the thing. People who know they're committing an illegal act are always walking around looking behind their shoulder. So you've got to be careful about that. Now, number 10, <clears throat> support a government designed and run for all the people. Unscrupulous and evil men and groups can usurp the power of government and use it to their own ends. Government organized and conducted solely for self-interested individuals and groups gives the society a short lifespan. This imperils the survival of everyone in the land. It even imperils those who attempt it. History is full of such governmental deaths. Opposition to such governments usually just brings on more violence. 
But one can raise his voice in caution when such abuses are abroad, and one need not actively support such a government. Doing nothing illegal is yet possible by simply withdrawing one's cooperation to bring about an eventual reform. Even as this is being written, and this book was written in 1981, there are several governments in the world that are failing only because their people express their silent disagreement by simply not cooperating. These governments are at risk. Any untimely wind of mischief or mischance could blow them over. On the other hand, where a government is obviously working hard for all its people rather than uh, for some special interest group or insane dictator, one should support it to the limit. There's a subject called government. In schools, they mostly teach civics, which is merely how the current organization is put together. The real subject, government, goes under various headings, political economy, political philosophy, political power, etc. The whole subject of government and how to govern can be quite precise, almost a technical science. If one is interested in having a better government, one that does not cause trouble, one should suggest it be taught at earlier ages in schools. It is, after all, the people and their own opinion leaders who sweat and fight and bleed for their country. A government cannot bleed. It cannot even smile. It's just an idea men have. The way to happiness is hard to travel when shadowed with the oppression of tyranny. A benign government designed and run for all the people has been known to smooth the way. And here's the best line. When such occurs, it deserves support. So far, we don't have one here in the United States. What we have in the United States is a dictatorship right now. Number 11, do not harm a person of goodwill. Despite the insistence of evil men that all men are evil, there are many good men around and women too. You may have been fortunate enough to know some. Factually, the society runs on men and women of goodwill. Public workers, opinion leaders, those in the private sector who do their jobs are in the great majority people of goodwill. If they weren't, they long since would have ceased to serve. Ladies and gentlemen, the DVD of The Way to Happiness, this part literally brought tears to my eyes. These things that I read you on the DVD are astoundingly well dramatized. So it's not it's not as if at the end of it, of watching the movie, you can go, I didn't quite understand that. The violent criminal, the propagandist, the sensation-seeking media all tend to distract one attention from the solid, everyday fact that the society would not run at all were it not for the individuals of goodwill. I don't, it's hard to describe this, this exact thing, but what is a person of goodwill? One of the things that I was taught was that all men are good. Sometimes they become not good. It is shown by their acts. So most men are good, but sometimes their acts aren't. People of goodwill, they guard the street, they counsel the children, they take the temperatures, they put out the fires, they speak good sense in quiet voices. And one's apt to overlook the fact that people of goodwill are the ones that keep the world going and man alive on earth. Yet such can be attacked and strong measures should be advocated and taken to defend them and keep them from harm. For your own survival and that of your family and friends depends on it. The way to happiness is far more easily followed when one supports people of goodwill. That could come to a point where you actually have to stand and defend somebody of goodwill. I recall years ago, Hollywood, I'm driving down the street, and here is this meter maid. Yeah, I know, meter maids are pretty much the bane of everyone's existence, especially if they live in a city. But this was, she must have been five foot tall, if that, very thin. And there was this piece of crap pickup that had parked illegally up on a curb and not even any parking meters around. And she had, had stopped, and I could see her, what she was doing. She pulled over, which is the little three-wheel Cushman meter-made cart. She pulls over in front of it, and she gets out, and she looks around, 
maybe somebody's in trouble, maybe there's a problem here. This was in a residential area, by the way, right in a corner of Santa Monica Boulevard, and maybe three or four houses north of there. And she looks around, and she, she can't see anybody, and she looks in the window. She, she's trying to figure out what's going on here. Why would this person be so blatant in parking illegally? She can't see anything, and she's not going to go up to doors and knock on the doors. It's not her job. So she can't see anybody. Nobody's rushing out to apologize for parking like that. So she starts writing a ticket. So the light changes green. I'm about to go past that street, and some guy bigger than me, I'm 6'2", 250 pounds, comes rushing out of this house and gets in her face. This guy's over six feet tall. He's like 300, 350 pounds. I can hear him screaming at her from back where I am, which is about a half a block away. I step on it. I pull in in front of her pickup. I get out of my car, and I put myself between him and her. I never said a word. I put myself between them. Now, if that was just some another smart-ass cop being rude and threatening, I wouldn't have wasted my time, but it wasn't. And this guy, <laughs> he yelled a few more times, and then he kind of, I guess he realized that I was there to stop him, and I would do anything that it was necessary to stop him from harming her. And he turned around and walked off, went back in the house. And she, I turned around, she was standing there with tears in her eyes. She says, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. I said, well, that's why I'm here. So sometimes you'll have to stand between evil and good. That doesn't mean you don't have to be afraid. Only an idiot's not afraid. But you have to do what you have to do. Number 12, safeguard and improve your environment. Now, that's an all-encompassing thing, isn't it? So let's break it down. What's part of your environment? Your appearance. Sometimes it doesn't occur to some individuals, as they don't have to spend their days looking at themselves, that they form part of the scenery, and some do not realize that they are judged by others on the basis of their appearance. You know, when I was a kid, it's like, say, I don't care what I look like. That's all well and good when you live at home with mommy. But when you start paying the bills yourself, you better start caring what you look like. While clothes can be expensive, soap and the other tools of self-care are not that hard to obtain. The techniques are sometimes difficult to dig up, but can be evolved. In some societies, when they are barbaric or become very degraded, it can even be the fashion to be a public eyesore. Actually, it's a symptom of a lack of self-respect. Respect yourself enough to take care of yourself. Exercise and working, one can become very messed up. But that does not rule out getting cleaned up again. Some European and English workmen manage a style of appearance even when working. I've seen that. I know a guy when I was running a, a resort in South Lake Tahoe, he always wore a three-piece vested suit. He was a painter from Sweden. An environment disfigured with unkept people can have a subtle, depressing effect on one's morale. Encourage people around you to look good by complimenting them when they do so or, or even gently helping them with their problems when they don't. It could improve their self-regard and their morale as well. What he's not saying here is that people who don't take care of themselves, that don't have a good appearance, that can usually be understood. That's how they are in their everyday life at home also. So you have to look around you again. Are those people that are in violation of any of these, are those people the ones you want around you? The next part is take care of your own area. When people mess up their own possessions and area, it can slop over into your own. When people seem to be incapable of caring for their own things and places, it's a symptom of their feelings that they don't really belong there and don't really own their own things. Possessions, the rooms, the workspaces, the vehicles of such people advertise that they're not really the property of anyone. Worse, a sort of rage against possessions can sometimes be seen. Vandalism is a manifestation of it. The house or car nobody owns is soon ruined. I remember one time in Modesto, California, I met my brother's house having a beer on the front porch, and these three teenagers are walking down the street, side street. One of them runs up on, on the hood of a Cadillac and kicks the windshield in. And they all three start laughing, and they slowly walk by. If I did something as felonious as that, I would be running. 
But no, they thought it was funny. Why? Because nobody really owns that. Who cares? The insurance company will pay for it. Those who build and try to maintain low-income housing are often dismayed by the rapidity with which ruin can set in. The poor, by definition, own little or nothing. But whether rich or poor, and for whatever reason, people who do not take care of their possessions and places can cause disorder to those about them. Ask such people what they really do own in life, and if they really belong where they are, you'll receive some surprising answers, and that'll help them a great deal, too. The skill of organizing possessions and places can be taught. To protect your own possessions and places, get others to take care of theirs. There are whole businesses out there created solely to teach these kind of people responsibility. And that's what it is, is a level of responsibility. And then help take care of the planet. Now, this is meant not in a tree-hugging, bunny-kissing, liberal way, but it's very simple. You have to share the planet. So, you know, you can do what you can to take care of it a little bit. What happens to this planet around you affects you. And, in fact, what happens far away can affect you. The largest fire ever recorded in history happened in the Gobi Desert about 10 years ago, thousands of miles away from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Three days after the fire started, I woke up to find a half an inch of soot on my car. And then our sky started to turn brown. And it was like that for about a week. It was astounding. So things far away can affect you. Recent discoveries by space probes to Venus have shown that our own world could be deteriorated to a point where it would no longer support life. That's, that's a possibility on any planet. Cut down too many forests, foul too many rivers and seas, mess up the atmosphere, and we've had it. The surface temperature can go roasting hot, the rain can turn to sulfuric acid, all living things could die. Well, one can ask, even if that were true, what could I do about it? Even if one were simply to frown when people do things to mess up the planet, one would be doing something about it. I'm stopped at uh, Highway 95, which is the main highway from Canada to Mexico. Red light, car next to me. Man, woman, three children in it. Well, they can tell they just finished eating at McDonald's. How? By the McDonald's bag she just wadded up and threw out the window. I jumped out, picked it up, and said, I noticed their license plate, by the way, was Canadian. I said, welcome to America. We have things here, obviously, are missing in your country called garbage cans. I'd appreciate it if you use it and not, well, I won't say exactly what I said, and not foul up my country. They took the hint. Care of the planet begins in one's own front yard. It extends to the area one travels to get to school or work. It covers such places as where one picnics or goes on vacation. The litter, which messes up the terrain and water supply, the dead brush, which invites fire. These are things one need not contribute to and which, in otherwise idle moments, one can do something about. Planting a tree may seem little enough, but it is something. In the United States, you're driving along on all highways, and you'll see litter controlled by... Fred's Garage, litter control for the next one mile by the attorneys in the state capitol. I mean, all these different things. And it's people who say, I can do this. I don't need my taxes going to a government to hire people to come out here and clean up the litter. So every Saturday or Sunday, this, this organization, this group, which has said we're responsible for one mile of this freeway, they go out and pick up all the crap. I think that's that's an excellent and astounding level of responsibility. In some countries, old people, the unemployed, do not just sit around and go to pieces. They're used to care for gardens and parks and forests to pick up litter and add some beauty to the world. There is no lack of resources to take care of the planet. They're mainly ignored. There's no lack of technology, but technology in this application costs money. Money is available when sensible economic policies, policies which do not penalize everyone, are followed. Such policies exist. There are many things one can do to help take care of the planet. They begin with the idea that one should. They progress with suggestions to others they should. Man has gotten up to the potential of destroying the planet. He must be pushed on up to the capability and actions of saving it. It is, after all, what we're standing on. 
If others do not help safeguard and improve the environment, the way to happiness could have no roadbed to travel on at all. We're taking this viewpoint that you're paying attention to those around you. When you see somebody doing something as blatant as emptying their ashtray, can you believe this? In the parking lot of a store, some idiot opens the door, pulls his ashtray out, and dumps it on the ground. Well, I'm not stupid enough to think that he's going to pick it up, but I'm going to chew his butt out. Obviously, he's so blatantly irresponsible, we're not going to have a decent conversation. You know, you can be responsible for a little piece of your life. And, I mean, you can even go as far as taking down your Christmas tree lights that you've left up for three years. Number 13, do not steal. When one does not respect the ownership of things, his own possessions and property are at risk as well. And this was funny when I was a kid. Guy down the street, his house kept getting broke into. And we thought it was funny because he was a crook. He stole everything from cosmetics to cars, but his house kept getting broken into. I thought it was funny. person who, for one reason or another, has been unable to honestly accumulate possessions can pretend that nobody owns anything anyway, but don't try to steal his shoes. A thief sows the environment with mysteries. What happened to this? What happened to that? A thief causes trouble far in excess of the value of things stolen. Faced with the advertising of desirable goods, torn by the incapability of doing anything valuable enough to acquire possessions, or simply driven by an impulse, those who steal imagine they are acquiring something valuable at low cost. There's some sayings that I was raised with. One is, you get what you pay for, and the other is, it's worth what you paid for it. So if you get something for free, it's worth nothing to you. And this is what public housing is. They get these things for free, so that's why they're pigsties. They're, they're worth nothing to them. Humans have this unique phenomenon that occurs. When they get something tenuously for free, then they don't have to put any effort out whatsoever to get it. Remember what I said, all men are good. Well, these good men start feeling bad about getting something for free. I've had many people come to me and say, you know what, I'll, I'll help you, I'll fix your roof for nothing. And I said, no, I can't, I can't afford that. What? I can't afford to pay you nothing. I have to have a fair exchange. This is how I keep my universe as clean as possible, and yours as well. The greatest robbers in history paid for their loot by spending their lives in wretched hideouts and prisons with only rare moments of the good life. Yeah, that's the thing, you know, <laughs> and we see this all the time on TV. These people steal a million dollars, two million, three million, five million. They end up living in hovels because they're afraid that uh, it's going to be taken from them or they'll be taken and thrown into who's gal. Stolen goods greatly reduce in value. They have, they have to be hidden. They are always a threat to liberty itself. Even in communist states, the thief is sent to prison. Stealing things is really just an admission that one is not capable enough to make it honestly or that one has a streak of insanity. Ask a thief which one it is. It's either one or the other. The road to happiness cannot be traveled with stolen goods. Okay, this is number 14, and this one here is one of my pets. This is the one which, in violation, would get you kicked out of my house, my business, my life. Be worthy of trust. Unless one can have confidence in the reliability of those about one, he himself is at risk. And this is why I'm saying you have the right and the responsibility to require these from those that are around you and that affect you. When those he counts on let him down, his own life can become disordered and even his own survival can be put at risk. Mutual trust is the firmest building block in human relationships. Do you understand what that is? Mutual trust is the firmest building block in human relationships. Without it, the whole structure comes down. Trustworthiness is a highly esteemed commodity. When one has it, one is considered valuable. When one has lost it, one may be considered worthless. One should get others around one to demonstrate it and earn it. They will become much more valuable to themselves and others thereby. This is vital. We've all seen the movies and heard the stories of the sentry that fell asleep at night. He lost all trust of everyone around him. The next part of this is keep your word once given. When one gives an assurance or promise or makes a sworn intention, one must make it come true. Notice he didn't say one must try says one must make it come true. 
If one says he's going to do something, he should do it. If he says he's not going to do something, he should not do it. One's regard for another is based in no small degree on whether or not the person keeps his or her word. Even parents, for instance, would be surprised at the extent they drop in the opinion of the children when a promise is not kept. People who keep their word are trusted and admired. People who do not are regarded like garbage. Those who break the word often never get a second chance. A person who does not keep his word can soon find himself entangled and trapped in all manner of guarantees and restrictions and can even find himself shut off from normal relations with others. There is no more thorough self-exile from one's fellow than to fail to keep one's promises once made. One should never permit another to give his or her word lightly. And one should insist that when a promise is made, it must be kept. One's own life can become very disordered in trying to associate with people who do not keep their promises. The way to happiness is much, much easier to travel with people one can trust. This is vital. This is not lightweight. To me, this is like the number one in the 21 precepts. Be worthy of trust. In my life, if I say to somebody, I will do something or I will not do something, it is if God himself carved it on a piece of stone and set it in my lap. That is exactly what I do. And when somebody says to me, I will be there at 10 a.m., woe be to those who are late. The universe and I do not accept excuses. And I don't expect others to either. There are people who I've never physically met. I I've never seen them in person. Yet I would hand them a thousand dollars and say give me back that in 30 days will you please and in fact years ago years ago I'm working on a street selling seafood this guy comes up and he's he says well you don't have a lot of product here I said no I, I need some money to uh, expand my products you know and, and that's it just I just need a, uh, some money that's all he goes well, how much you need I said thousand bucks he goes here what you don't know me he goes oh I do because I've seen you out here seven days a week for a month straight he goes I, I have an office across the street I said I see you every day you are like clockwork you show up at 9 a.m., you leave at 7 p.m. every night. So here's a $1,000. Pay me back when you can. He thought I was trustworthy, and I am, because I've always been taught since I was a little kid, when I say something, it is. So I told him, I will pay you back in two months. He said, okay. And in two months, I paid him back. Turned out he owned the largest log home building company in the United States. $1,000 to him was, was chicken feet, literally. But I was worthy of trust, and I kept my word once given. This is a vital thing. This could mean your life or someone's around you. Somebody says, okay, I need you to be here at 9 p.m. on the nose. It could go to the extent of costing someone their life, their welfare, their livelihood. When you give your word... There is no such thing as going back. Be worthy of trust. This is vital. This this will make you a god among men if you are worthy of trust. It would astound you, the people that have talked to me in trust, knowing that come hell or high water, I would never divulge anything that they had said to me. Number 15, fulfill your obligations. Each one of these gets more and more vital in survival, especially if the people around you aren't following them. Fulfill your obligations. In going through life, one inevitably incurs obligations. Actually, one is born with certain obligations, and they tend to accumulate more thereafter. It is no novel or new idea that one owes his parents a debt for bringing one into the world and for raising one. And I don't want to hear this, I didn't have a choice to be born, or I didn't have a choice who my parents were. Yeah, you know what? So what? It's a credit to parents that they don't push it any harder than they do. Are you listening, Eric? But it is an obligation, nevertheless, even the child feels it. And as life continues to run its course, one accumulates other obligations to other persons, to friends, to society, and even to the world. Now, it is an extreme disservice to a person not to permit him to satisfy or pay off his obligations. Do you get that? It's an extreme disservice to a person not to permit him to satisfy or pay off his obligations. I went to college for a short time at University of Davis. I had a little MGB, 64 MGB. 
tires were bald as the top of my head. My job was a bartender at this one of these bars in Davis. And this guy comes in and he, he says, hey, you're B out there. I said, yeah. He goes, man, your tires are bald. You need some new tires. I go, yeah, well, that takes money. He goes, I own a tire shop down the street. If you can pay me 20 bucks a week, I'll put four brand new tires on there. So, oh, sure, I'll do that. So he put tires on. I made one payment and then I left the college. I totally forgot about it for five years. I mean, totally. And then something happened in my life where I had to look back and look at the things that I had not finished. Look at the obligations that I hadn't squared. And he was one of them. So I went back to Davis and he was out of business. I went to the, to the city hall and said, what happened to this guy? Oh, he moved to Tennessee or something like this, whatever. Do you have his address? I got his address. I mailed him a check for 80 bucks. He was astounded that I had done that. But there are things that you can do. You know, you look at the obligations that you've never fulfilled and bring them all up. Fix them. Fulfill them. You'd be surprised how much weight disappears from your shoulders when you did that. No small part of the revolt of childhood is caused by others refusing to accept the only coins a baby or child or youth has with which to discharge the weight of obligation. The baby smiles. The child's fumbling efforts to help or just the effort to be a good son or a good daughter commonly pass unrecognized. Unaccept they can be ill-aimed, often ill-planned. They fade quickly. Such efforts, when they fail to discharge the enormity of the debt, can be replaced with any number of mechanisms or rationalizations. I was owed it all in the first place. We hear that all the time. I didn't ask to be born. My parents or guardians are no good. Life isn't worth living anyway. And yet these obligations continue to pile up. The weight of obligations can be a crushing burden. One can see no way to discharge it. It can bring about all manner of individual or social disorders. When it cannot be discharged, those who are owed often unwittingly find themselves targets for the most unlooked for reactions. One can help a person who finds himself in the dilemma of unpaid obligations at debt by simply going over with him or her all the obligations they've incurred and have not fulfilled moral, social, and financial and work out some way to discharge all of those the person feels are still owed. I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I have traveled thousand miles to discharge an obligation that I'd had for 20 years. One should accept the efforts of a child or an adult to pay off non-financial obligations they feel they may owe. One should help bring about some mutually agreeable solution to the discharge of financial ones. Discourage a person from incurring more obligations than it is possible for him or her to actually discharge or repay. The way to happiness is very hard to travel when one is burdened with the weight of obligations which one is owed or which he is not discharged. There are many forms of obligations. Somebody who has helped you in the past. I've stopped and changed tires for old ladies. And they felt like they had an obligation to me because I had gone out of my way. I'm not going to take money from an old lady to change her tire. But you know what? You ever heard the term pay it forward? We come to number 16. Number 16 is an interesting one because it's therapeutic unto itself. Be industrious. Work is not always pleasant, but few are unhappier than those who lead a purposeless, idle, and bored existence. Children gloom to their mother when they have nothing to do. The low-mindedness of the unemployed, even when they are on relief, or the dole is legendary. The retired man with nothing further to accomplish in life perishes from inactivity as shown by statistics. And I can tell you that right now. My grandfather, he was a famous mountain man in Northern California. We were up in the mountains, and he had what he said was hard to breathe a little bit. Next day, we took him to the hospital, and they said he'd had 17 heart attacks. Needless to say, he went under the knife, so to speak, and when they got done, he wasn't able to do a lot of work. He wasn't able to do anything. He was 80, so he just sat around until he got tired of sitting around, 
and started to knit. Now, he knit beer can hats. If anybody knows what that is, he actually got a presidential commendation for making beer can hats for every senator and congressman on the Hill. And then his hand started to shake too much. So he ended up not being able to do anything. I mean anything. He couldn't even cheat at cribbage anymore. One day he told me, he goes, I'm tired of this crap. I'm checking out. And uh, three days later, he died. He had nothing to do. I tell my wife, I will never retire. I'll quit one job and move to another like I do with gunsmithing, but I'll never retire. The thing about being industrious, morale is boosted to highs by accomplishment. In fact, it can be demonstrated that production is the basis of morale. Now, understand this. Production is the basis of morale. So if you're sitting around feeling like hell, your morale is really low, do something. I don't care what it is. I'll tell you how therapeutic it is. I had a woman that was catatonic to a degree. She was sitting, repeating things back and forth, back and forth, the same statements over and over and over and over and over and over again. So I simply helped her stand up, and she was like a total robot, could do nothing on her own. I walked her into the kitchen, and I had her wash plates for an hour. That's all. Just wash dishes. Obviously, no glass, no knives, forks or anything in there for an hour. By doing that, she was producing something. doesn't matter what you produce. The mere act of production raises your morale. It raised her morale to the point where she could come out of her catatonia. Let's just say I pissed off a psychiatrist years ago when I was in the Navy, and he threw me in Ward 13 in Norfolk, Virginia. If anybody had been around there, you know what Ward 13 is. Tossed me in there one Friday night, and you ever seen one flew over the cuckoo's nest? That's what it looked like. So they took my clothes and gave me pajamas and said, okay, that bunk over there is yours, and we'll, we'll have to talk to the doctor Monday and see what the, why the hell he put you in here. Next to me was a guy sitting on the bunk, and in front of him was a chessboard with all the chess pieces sitting there, and, and he, he had black on his side, and one pawn was moved forward. And he sat there all night. I went to sleep, woke up the next morning. He was still sitting there. And I asked the, the orderly, I said, what's that all about? He goes, he's been here three years. That's all he does. He showers, shaves, eats, and sits there. So I sat down in front of him, and I moved the white pawn. And we instantly played a game of chess. He thoroughly whipped my butt. And when I got done, I, I turned around, and there were three orderly standing behind me with this totalish look of, of awe on their face. And I said, well, he just needed to be put into production. He just needed to do something. People who are not industrious dump the workload on those around them. They tend to burden one. It's hard to get along with idle people. Aside from depressing one, they can also be a bit dangerous. Take a look at the voters for the abomination. They're idle because they're moochers. And we'll go into that word in a little while. The workable answer is to persuade such to decide on some activity and get them busy with it. The most lasting benefit will be found to arise from work that leads to actual production. The way to happiness is a high road, but it includes industriousness that leads to tangible production. See, there's two parts to it. It's production. It's, it's doing something. It ends up with you producing something. So I don't care what you do. We got a guy that comes in the store, and he, he asked me for the the uh, pallets back there behind our, behind the store, and we don't care. And I asked him one time, well, what do you do with all these pallets? You burn them? He goes, oh, hell no. I make birdhouses out of them and sell them along the road. He lost his job five, six years ago. He couldn't get anything, any other work. He knows how to use his hands. And he said he told me, he goes, I went on YouTube, and some guy was showing how to make birdhouses out of pallets. So he started doing it. And he travels all over the California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Idaho. So number 16 is be industrious. Number 17, this is something that has pretty much been bred out of people for the past 40 years. Be competent. In an age of intricate equipment and high-speed machines and vehicles, one's survival and that of one's family and friends depend in no small measure upon the general competence of others. In the marketplace, in the sciences, the humanities, and in the government, incompetence can threaten the lives and future of the few or the many. Man has always 
had an impulse to control his fate. Superstition, propitiation of the right gods, ritual dances before the hunt can all be viewed as efforts, no matter how faint or unavailing, to control destiny. It was not until he learned to think, to value knowledge, and to apply it with competent skill that he began to dominate his environment. The true gift of heaven may have been the potential to be competent. One of the ways you judge somebody's competency is not how well he can adapt to the environment. It's how well he adapts his environment to him. In common pursuits and activities, man respects skill and ability. These in a hero or athlete are almost worshipped. The true test of competence is the end result, not the effort. To the degree that a man is competent, he survives. To the degree he is incompetent, he perishes. I mean, it's very, it's that simple. If you put a volume control knob on ability, incompetent is that volume knob all the way to zero. Competent is that volume knob all the way to ten. So it's very simple. The more competent you are, the higher your survival ability. Encourage the attainment of competence in any worthwhile pursuit. Compliment it and reward it whenever you find it. Demand high performance standards. The test of a society is whether or not you, your family, and friends can live in it safely. The ingredients of competence include observation, study, and practice. And the key here is also, you have the right and the responsibility to require those around you who affect you to be competent in whatever they do. I got a part-time job years ago cutting glass for coffee tables. And this is one-inch thick glass, so it's not window glass. You had to be competent. Every second that you were doing this work, you had to be competent. I had to have full control of everything I do. I had to know what I was doing. I had to not allow my hands or anything else to slip. I was the only person in a four-man crew that didn't get cut at least once in a month. That's because I was competent at what I did. Another part to be competent is look. See what you see, not what someone tells you that you see. What you observe is what you observe. Look at things in life and others directly, not through any cloud of prejudice, curtain of fear, or the interpretation of another. Instead of arguing with others, get them to look. The most flagrant lies can be punctured. The greatest pretenses can be exposed. The most intricate puzzles can resolve. The most remarkable revelations can occur simply by gently insisting that someone look. One can indicate what direction to look and suggest that they do look. The conclusions are up to them. A child or adult sees what he himself sees, and that is reality for him. True competence is based on one's own ability to observe. That's the thing about competence, is that you have to observe how that thing interacts with you. Another part is learn. Has there ever been an instance when another had some false data about you? This can give you some idea of the havoc false data can raise. And this is the thing that's happening all over the Internet right now. The federal government has agents through chat rooms and blogs. and They even call in radio shows to discredit hosts, to threaten people, to put out false data. But see, none of that would matter if all of you looked and learned by yourself without listening to others. Do you ever get emails from somebody saying, Oh my God, look what they're doing now! And it's a forwarding and it's addressed to like 200 people and it's talking about some weird crap that somebody or something is supposed to have done about how this new food is poisonous or something like that. Every single one of those I check out. I research down. Every single one. And you know what? Every single one is a hoax. I don't get sucked into it because I verify everything. The main process of learning consists of inspecting the available data, 
selecting the true from the false, the important from the unimportant, and arriving thereby at conclusions one makes and can apply. If one does this, one is well on the way to being competent. And the key is you make your conclusions, and you must be able to apply these conclusions. If you can't, then there's some particle of data that's still wrong. The test of any truth is whether it is true for you. If, when one has gotten the body of data, cleared up any misunderstood words in it, looked over the scene, and it still doesn't seem true, then it isn't true so far as you're concerned. Reject it. And if you like, carry it further and conclude what the truth is for you. If one blindly accepts facts or truths just because he's told he must, facts and truths which do not seem true to one or even false, the end result can be an unhappy one. That is the alley to the trash bin of incompetence. Evaluate whether the data you're given is true or false. Another part of learning entails simply committing things to memory, like the spelling of words, mathematical tables and formulas, the sequence of which buttons to push. But even in simple memorization, one has to know what the material is, what it's for, and, and when to use it. So even though you have to memorize certain things, the process of learning is not just piling data on top of more data. It's one of obtaining new understandings and better ways to do things. Those who get along in life never really stop studying and learning. The competent engineer keeps up with new ways. The good athlete continue reviews the progress of his sport. Any professional keeps a stack of his texts to hand and consults them. The new model egg beater or washing machine, the latest year's car, all demand some study and learning before they can be competently operated. Which kind of upsets me. You know, I just as soon get in the car, turn a key, and drive off. Nowadays, you got to get in the car, adjust this, adjust that, push that button, turn a key, make sure the Bluetooth set properly, the GPS, I mean, on and on my God, I'd rather walk. It is a very arrogant fellow who thinks he has nothing further to learn in life. It is dangerously blind. It is a dangerously blind one who cannot shed his prejudices and false data and supplant them with facts and truths. A civilization to survive must nurture the habits and abilities to study in its schools. A school is not a place where one puts children to get them out from underfoot during the day. At least it shouldn't be. That'd be far too expensive for just that. It's not a place where one manufactures parrots either. School is where one should learn to study and where children can be prepared to come to grips with reality, learn to handle it with competence, and be ready to take over tomorrow's world, the world where current adults will be on their later, middle, or old age. At least that's what schools are supposed to be. The hardened criminal never learned to learn. Repeatedly, the courts seek to teach him that if he commits the crime again, he will go back to prison. Most of them do the same crime again and, and again and again and go back to prison. Factually, criminals cause more and more laws to be passed. The decent citizen is the one that obeys the laws. The criminals, by definition, do not. Criminals cannot learn. Not all the orders and directives and punishments and duress will work upon a being that does not know how to learn and cannot learn. A characteristic, now listen to this part, a characteristic of a government that has gone criminal, as has sometimes happened in history, history is that its leaders cannot learn. All records and good sense may tell them that disasters follow oppression. Yet it has taken a violent revolution to handle them or World War II to get rid of a Hitler. And those were very unhappy events for mankind. Such did not learn. They reveled in false data. They refused all evidence and truth. They had to be blown away. And so what he's saying there is that certain politicians don't learn from history. They like to pass off lies as reality. And they think that socialism didn't work before in every country that ever tried it. But it can work here because we're smarter than everyone else is. The insane cannot learn. Driven by hidden evil intentions or crushed beyond the ability to reason, facts and truth and reality are far beyond them. They personify false data. They will not or cannot really perceive or learn. And these are the insane. Are the 
ones that you show reality to and say, this is what happens if you stick your hand in the fire and they look at you and say, you liar. Nothing's going to happen to my hand. Why don't you stick it in the fire? I don't have to. I just know you're a liar. A multitude of personal and social problems arise from the inability or refusal to learn. The lives of some around you have gone off the rails because they do not know how to study, because they do not learn. If one cannot get those around him to study and learn, one's own work can become much harder and even overloaded, and one's own survival potential can be greatly reduced. One can help others study and learn if only by putting in their reach the data they should have. One can help simply by acknowledging what they have learned. One can assist if only by appreciating and demonst- any demonstrated increase in competence. If one likes, one could do more than that. Another can be assisted by actually helping them without disputes. Sort out the false data by helping them find and clear up any words they don't understand. By helping them find and handle the reasons they do not study and learn. As life is largely trial and error, instead of coming down on somebody who makes a mistake, find out how come a mistake was made and see if the other person can learn something from it. Now and then, you you may surprise yourself by entangling a person's life just by having gotten the person to study and learn. The world is brutal enough already to people who can't learn. What is it I've been doing? Helping people learn. I'm on post officer training where I had to qualify with my carry gun. And the girl next to me had a 4-inch Smith & Wesson Model 15. She couldn't hit the target at 7 feet. And in talking to her, it turned out she had false data. What was the false data? Put your front sight on the target. Whoever gave her the data never told her, line your front sight up with your rear sight. He gave her wrong information. I helped her look, and she was quite able to evaluate on her own. I simply said, you know you have a rear sight. Yeah, but I never knew what it was for. Well, here, look at my pistol. You see the rear sight? Yeah. You see how it can line up with the front sight? You mean that's what it's supposed to do? And she instantly became, I mean, it was like night and day. She was a crack shot after that. So that's what happens with false data. Somebody doesn't know something. It doesn't mean they're stupid. It means they have the wrong information. You can guide them to it or simply open the book and say, here, here's the information you need. You have look, you have learn, then you have practice. Learning bears fruit when it's applied. Wisdom, of course, can be pursued for its own sake. There's even a kind of beauty in it. One never really knows if he is wise or not until he sees the results of trying to apply it. Any activity, skill, or profession, ditch digging, law, engineering, cooking, or whatever, no matter how well studied, collides at last with the acid test. Can one do it? And that doing requires practice. Movie stuntmen who don't practice first get hurt. So do housewives. Safety is not really a popular subject because it usually are accompanied by be careful and go slow. People can feel restraints are being put on them. But there's another approach. If one is really practiced, his skill and dexterity is such that he doesn't have to be careful or go slow. Safe high speed of motion can become possible only with practice. One skill and dexterity must be brought up to match the speed of the age one lives in, and that is done with practice. hundred years ago, 20 miles an hour is a pretty good clip on, in a car because of the roads. Nowadays... I've driven at 150. Depends on the road. So I've increased my skill and dexterity a whole bunch. One can train one's eyes, one's body, one's hands and feet until with practice they get to know what they're doing. One no longer has to think. It's called muscle memory. To set up the stove or park the car, one just does it. In any activity, quite a bit of what passes for talent is really just practice. This is not news to most of you listening to me. The more you practice something with the intent of getting better at it, the better you're going to get. Because as you practice this thing, whatever it is, it could be juggling, it could be throwing a knife, it could be doing a brake job on a 1961 Chevy. It could be any of these things. 
There is a uh, an axiom. Uh, the number of times through equals certainty. That's called practice. But here's the key. You have to intend that you get better at it. You can't just do it. I intend to get better at whatever I'm doing. So that's where my attention is, is getting better each time I do something, even if it's the first time. Statistics tend to bear out that the least practiced have the most accidents. The same principle applies to crafts and professions, which mainly use the mind. The lawyer who has not drilled, drilled, drilled on courtroom procedure may not have learned to shift his mental gears fast enough to counter new turns of a case and therefore loses it. An undrilled stockbroker could lose a fortune in minutes. A green salesman who has not rehearsed selling can starve for lack of sales. The right answer is to practice, practice, and practice. In this day and age, I have seen so many jobs that people have no training for. Use car lots or any car lots, new car lots. New car lots are nothing but, but meat factories. They'll hire any Tom, Dick, or Harry or Harriet. They just throw you out there, literally. They'll give you maybe a half hour, couple hours training, maximum one day, and then throw you on the lot. You go out there and somebody says, hey, tell me about this uh, new Hemi motor in here. Uh, what's a Hemi? You know, or somebody would ask questions such as, well, what's the finish on this car? Is, is this, what, what, what's, what's this paint job called? What's this color called? Uh, it looks blue to me. 27 different versions of blue. So you can't just say blue. And it's not just cars. It's with everything. It's in stores. You go into Home Depot. You're in the plumbing section and you're looking for an adapter from three-quarter to, to one inch for cast iron. You can't see it. So you ask the guy, I need an adapter three-quarter to one inch. Well, let's look around. Wait a minute, dude. I already done looking around. I'm trying to ask somebody. He goes, well, I, I'm sorry. I wasn't working this department last week. I just started in this department. And that's the same thing all over the United States. People are not expected to be competent. Sometimes one finds that what one has learned, he can't apply. If so, the faults lay with improper study or with a teacher or with the text. It is one thing to read the directions. It's sometimes another thing entirely to try and apply them. And I would refer to you the self-assembly instructions on pretty much anything that comes out of China. I am totally astounded that any American could ever assemble anything that comes out of China, especially if an American didn't write the instruction sheet. Now and then, when one is getting nowhere with practice, one has to throw the book away and start from scratch. The field of movie sound recordings has been like that. If one followed what recordist texts there have been, one couldn't get a bird song to sound any better than a foghorn. And that's why you can't tell what the actors are saying in some of these movies. But theory and data blossom only when applied and applied with practice. One is at risk when those about one do not practice their skills and they, until they can really do them. There is a vast difference between good enough and professional skill and dexterity. The gap is bridged with practice. Get people to look, study, work it out, and then do it. And then when they have it right, get them to practice, practice, and practice until they can do it like a pro. There is considerable joy in skill, dexterity, and moving fast. It can only be done safely with practice. Trying to live in a high-speed world with low-speed people is not very safe. The way to happiness is best traveled with competent companions. In this day and age, you're not expected to be competent. Do you know when I was a kid, there was only one option, to be competent. So you strive, no matter what you did, you strive to be as best at it as you could. That's called competency. Nowadays, a competent worker is abnormal. It's like astoundingly unheard of. A competent worker could go to work at McDonald's and within a week would start shooting up the management chain because he is willing to be competent. You know, he's not going to sit 
around being a whopper flopper or a tackle bender or worked at the drive-up window. He becomes competent of what he does. And that, I want to refer you back to Atlas Shrugged. If any of you out there have never read Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, you need to read it. It was written over 50 years ago, and if you start reading it, you're going to go, oh, no, no, this had to be written today. It's a novel about capitalism and socialism and communism, and it is the best read in a book I've ever had in my whole life. Talking about competency, and I told you about this, uh, the woman, this woman, the lead, driving around looking for the guy that invented this perpetual motion machine. She wasn't sure where he was, and she stops at a gas station, and this guy comes out, and he's helping her fill up with gas, and this is in the book, not the movie. He was so good, his windows were washed streakless. The front, the rear, all four sides. The headlights were washed, the taillights were washed. He checked the oil, checked the antifreeze. Che- I mean, he checked everything. And she was astounded at his competency. And then when she looked at him, she realized that was the inventor. And she said, what are you doing here with a mind like yours? He said, I'm doing the best that I can. I'm competent at what I do, and I enjoy that. And number 18. This number 18 automatically will show you. You figure it out yourself, but I'll explain it when we're done with it. Number 18. Respect the religious beliefs of others. Not agree with them. Respect them. Tolerance is a good cornerstone on which to build human relationship. When one views the slaughter and suffering caused by religious and Tolerance down all the history of man and into modern times, one can see that intolerance is a very non-survival activity. Religious tolerance does not mean one cannot express his own beliefs. It does mean that seeking to undermine or attack the religious faith and belief of others or another has always been a short road to trouble. Philosophers since the times of ancient Greece have disputed with one another about the nature of God, man, and, and the universe. The opinions of authorities ebb and flow. Just now the philosophies of mechanism and materialism dating back as far as ancient and Egypt and Greece are, are the fad. Neat as their explanations of evolution may be, they still do not rule out additional factors that might be at work that might be merely using such things as evolution. They are today the official philosophies and even are even taught in schools. They have their own zealots who attack the beliefs and relig- religions of others. The result can be intolerance and contention. If all the brightest minds since the 5th century B.C. have never been able to agree on a subject or religion or even anti-religion, it is an arena of combat between people that one would do well to stay out of. In this sea of contention, one bright principle has emerged, the right to believe as one chooses. Faith and belief do not necessarily surrender to logic. They cannot even be declared to be illogical. They can be things quite apart. Any advice one might give another on this subject is safest when it simply asserts the right to believe as one chooses. One is at liberty to hold up his own beliefs for acceptance. One is at risk when he seeks to assault the beliefs of others, much more so when he attacks and seeks to harm them because of their religious convictions. Man, since the dawn of the species, has taken great consolation and joy in his religious. Even the mechanist and materialist of today sound much like the priests of old as they spread their dogma. Men without faith are a pretty sorry lot. They can even be given something to have faith in, but when they have religious beliefs, respect them. The way to happiness can become contentious when one fails to respect the religious beliefs of others. Remember I said to you, the purpose of me reading this is so that you can look about and determine the survival ability of those around you, how well they'll survive and how well you'll survive when associated with them. Islam automatically disrespects number 18. Anyone around you who is Muslim automatically is in violation of respect the religious beliefs of others because Islam teaches to basically conquer or kill everyone who is not Muslim. Any idiot can figure that out for themselves. 
Christianity is under attack and always has been in every Muslim country in the world. Every Muslim and every Jewish country in the world, Christianity is under attack. Muslims and Jews in Israel are um, very intolerant. Now, I know many Jews in the United States. Half are intolerant, half don't give a damn. So what you have also, you, you have these people who claim that they're Christian, and yet they do everything in their power to destroy Christianity everywhere around them, such as taking out prayer from public schools, getting banned religious symbols, Christian religious symbols on public property. Here's an example here in Coeur d'Alene. You can't have Christian religious symbols along the streets in Coeur d'Alene, yet they have Hindu symbols and Gia symbols. Again, you look out about you. My best friend's an agnostic, and he tells me they usually attack something that threatens them. And obviously, Christianity is threatening these people. And he goes, you know, I'll tell you what, if, if I wasn't an agnostic, I'd sure as hell be a Christian right now, because there's something, there's got to be something there. They're attacking it so vehemently. So this is something, again, you're taking a look, Not you're not looking at this, how can I change myself? How can I be better? I mean, you can if you wish. But this is, you take a look around you, and you say, does that person follow the precepts that Kurt talked about in the way to happiness? Or is he in violation of them? And to what degree is in violation to them because by paying attention to this you can determine your survivability because everyone affects you number 19 try not to do things to others that you would not like them to do to you among many peoples in many lands for many ages there have been versions of what is called the golden rule the above is a wording of it that relates to harmful acts only a saint could go through life without ever harming another, but only a criminal hurts those around him without a second thought. Completely aside from feelings of guilt or shame or conscience, all of which can be real enough and bad enough, it also happens to be true that the harm one does to others can recoil on oneself. Not all harmful acts are reversible. One can commit an act against another which cannot be waved aside or forgotten. Murder is such an act. One can work out how severe violation of almost any precept in this book could become an irreversible harmful act against another. The ruin of of another's life can wreck one's own. Society reacts. The prisons and the insane asylums are stuffed with people who harmed their fellows. But there are other penalties. Whether one is caught or not, committing harmful acts against others, particularly when hidden, can cause one to suffer severe changes in his attitude towards others and himself, all of them unhappy ones. The happiness and joy of life depart. This version of the golden rule is also useful as a test. When one persuades someone to apply it, the person can attain a reality on what a harmful act is. It answers for one what harm is. The philosophic question concerning wrongdoing, the argument, what is wrong, is answered at once on a personal basis. Would you not like that to happen to you? Then it must be a harmful action and from society's viewpoint, a wrong action. It can awaken social consciousness. It can then let one work out what one should do and what one should not do. In a time when some feel no restraint from doing harmful acts, the survival potential of the individual sinks to a very low ebb. If you can persuade people to apply this, you will have given them a precept by which they can evaluate their own lives and, for some, open the door to let them rejoin the human race. The way to happiness is closed to those who do not restrain themselves from committing harmful acts. I have met people who cannot restrain themselves. They do the hell they want when they want to do it. And they don't care the reactions that, uh, that affect everyone around them. Again, number 19, try not to do things to others that you would not like them to do to you. Number 20, just a little bit wording different. Try to treat others as you would want them to treat you. This is the positive version of the golden rule. The other is what not to do. This is what to do. Don't be surprised if someone seems to resent being told to be good. But the resentment may not come at all at the idea of being good. It may be because the person factually has a misunderstanding 
understanding of what being good means. One can get into a lot of conflicting opinions and confusions about what good behavior might be. One might never have grasped, even if the teacher did, why he or she was given the grade received for conduct. See, in school they used to have conduct. One might even have been given or assumed false data concerning it. Children should be seen and not heard. Being good means being inactive. However, there's a way to clear it all up. In all times and in most places, mankind is looked up to and revered certain values. They are called the virtues. This, ladies and gentlemen, if you've been bored by me till now, pay attention to what I'm going to read. They've been attributed to wise men, holy men, saints, and gods. They have made the difference between a barbarian and a cultured person. The difference between chaos and a decent society. Doesn't absolutely require a heavenly mandate nor a tedious search through the thick books of the philosophers to discover what good is. A self-revelation can occur on the subject. It can be worked out by almost any person. If one were to think how he or she would like to be treated by others, one would evolve the human virtues. Just figure out how you would want people to treat you. You would possibly, first of all, want to be treated justly. You wouldn't want people lying about you or, or falsely or harshly condemning you. You'd probably want your friends and companions to be loyal. You would not want them to betray you. You could want to be treated with good sportsmanship, not hoodwinked or tricked. You'd want people to be fair in their dealings with you. You would not want them to be dishonest with you and, and cheat you. You might want to be treated kindly and without cruelty. You would possibly want people to be considerate of your rights and feelings. And when you were down, you might like others to be compassionate. Instead of blasting you, you would probably want others to exhibit self-control. If you had any defects or shortcomings, if you made a mistake, you might want people to be tolerant, not critical. Rather than concentrated on censure and punishment, you would prefer people were forgiving. You might want people to be benevolent towards you, not mean or stingy. You possibly would want others to believe in you, not doubt you at every hand. You would probably prefer to be given respect, not insulted. Possibly you would want others to be polite to you and also treat you with dignity, right? You might like people to admire you. When you did something for them, you would possibly like them to appreciate. You would probably like others to be friendly towards you, and from some you might want love. And above all, you wouldn't want these people just pretending these things. You'd want them to be quite real in their attitudes and to be acting with integrity. You could possibly think of others. And there are the precepts contained in this book as well. But above, you would have worked out the summary of what are called the virtues. It requires no great stretch of imagination for one to recognize that if he were to be treated that way regularly by others around him, his life would exist on a pleasant level. And it is doubtful if one would build up much animosity towards those who treated him in this fashion. There is an interesting phenomenon at work in human relations. When one person yells at another, the other has an impulse to yell back. One is treated pretty much the way he treats others. One actually sets an example of how he should be treated. A is mean to B, so B is mean to A. A is friendly to B, so B is friendly to A. George hates all women, so women tend to hate George. Carlos acts tough to everyone, so others tend to act tough towards Carlos. And if they don't dare act tough to him in the open, they privately may nurse a hidden impulse to act very tough indeed toward Carlos if they ever really got a chance. In the unreal world of fiction and motion pictures, one sees polite villains with unbelievably efficient gangs and lone heroes who are outright bores. But life isn't really like that. Real villains are usually pretty crude people and their henchmen cruder. Napoleon and Hitler were betrayed right and left by their own people. Real heroes are the quietest talking fellows you'll ever meet, and they're very polite to their friends. When one is lucky enough to get to meet and talk to the men and women who are at the top of their professions, one is struck by an observation often made that they are just about the nicest people you ever met. That is one of the reasons they're at the top. They try, most of them, to treat others well. And those around them respond and tend to treat them well and even forgive their few shortcomings. One can work out for himself the human virtue just by recognizing how 
he himself would like to be treated. And from that, I think you'll agree one has settled what good conduct really is. It's a far cry from being inactive, sitting still with your hands in your lap and saying, there's little joy to be found in gloomy, restrained solemnity. When some of old made it seem that to practice virtue required a grim and dismal sort of life, they tended to infer that all pleasure came from being wicked. Nothing could be further from the facts. Joy and pleasure do not come from immorality. Quite the reverse. Joy and pleasure arise only in honest hearts. The immoral lead unbelievably tragic lives filled with suffering and pain. The human virtues have little to do with gloominess. They are the bright face of life themselves. Let me read you the virtues again. Justness, loyalty, good sportsmanship, fairness, honesty, kindness, consideration, compassion, self-control, tolerance, forgiveness, benevolence, belief, respect, politeness, dignity, admiration, friendliness, love, and all of it performed with integrity. Don't you suppose that many others would then begin to treat one the same way? One can influence the conduct of others around him. If one is not like that already, it can be made much easier by just picking one virtue a day and specializing it for that day. Wouldn't that be cool? Aside from personal benefit, one can take a hand, no matter how small, in beginning a new era for human relations. The pebble dropped in a pond can make ripples to the furthest shore. The way to happiness is made much brighter by applying the precept, try to treat others as you would want them to treat you. And this is a very important concept especially on the Internet now, especially with what we have happening in the corporate government that we have in the United States. We have people who are actively conspiring against citizens of the United States. They're going into, and I think I've, made, I've mentioned this before, they're, go, they're going into chat rooms and blogs, and they're spreading disinformation, they're causing disruptions, they're lying, passing falsehoods. How would these people feel if the exact same thing happened to them? And the last but not least of the 21 precepts for the way to happiness. Number 21, flourish and prosper. I remember when I was a hippie, I had this poster in my bedroom. In the backdrop was this beautiful mansion. Then there was a black 12-cylinder Jaguar with a beautiful woman in a black flowing dress leaning against it, smiling. And it said, the best revenge is to flourish and prosper. Sometimes others seek to crush one down, to make nothing out of one's hopes and dreams, one's futures and oneself. By ridicule and many other means, Another who is evil intention towards one can try to bring about one's decline. For whatever reason, efforts to improve oneself, to become happier in life, can become the subject of attacks. It is sometimes necessary to handle such direct, but there is a long-range handling that seldom fails. What exactly are such people trying to do to one? They're trying to reduce one downward. They must conceive that one is dangerous to them in some way. That if one got up in the world, one could be a menace to them. So in various ways, such seek to depress one's talents and capabilities. This is the Democrats in America. They've done this to many, many, many people. The black race right now has never been anything other than slaves. Used to be, they had a title that went with them, and when they were sold, that title went to the new owner. And now they have they have a different title. It's called voter. And it's not just the black race. It's all races now in the United States. This is the bottom line. And I've already done the statistical studies. Yes, I'm not saying the republic. Now, when I say Democrats and Republicans, I'm not talking about the idiots on the street that votes for these idiots. I'm talking about the politicians. Democrats are almost purely evil, and the Republicans are cowards. The Democrats can not have any of us flourish and prosper. They do not want that because that's not how they control. 
They control us by convincing us we can't flourish. And when they can't convince us, they pass laws and ordinances to stop us. Some madmen even have a general plan that goes like this. If A becomes more successful, A could be a menace to me. Therefore, I must do all I can to make A less successful. It never seems to occur to such that their actions might make an enemy out of A, even though he was no enemy before. It can be classed as an almost certain way for such madmen to get into trouble. Some do it just from prejudice or because they don't like someone. But however it's attempted, the real object of such is to make their target grow less and fail in life. The real handling of such a situation and such people, the real way to defeat them is to flourish and prosper. Oh yeah, it's true that such people seeing one improve his lot can become frantic and attack all the harder. And we've seen that in the abomination and the Democrats now that control America. The thing to do is handle them if one must, but don't give up flourishing and prospering. That is what such people want you to do. They want you to quit. If you flourish and prosper more and more, such people go into apathy about it. They can give up completely. If one's aims in life are worthwhile, if one carries them out with with some attention to the precepts in this book, if one flourishes and prospers, one certainly will wind up the victor. And that is my wish for you. Flourish and prosper. If you were to follow the precepts in this book 100%, your survival would be near that. If you were to require those around you to follow the precepts in this book, your survival would be increased as well. Now, I've just finished reading The Way to Happiness, Common Sense Guide to Better Living. I want to read the epilogue in the book. Happiness lies in engaging in worthwhile activities, but there is only one person who for certain can tell what will make one happy, and that is oneself. The precepts given in this book are really the edges of the road. Violating them, one is like the motorist who plunges off under the verge. The result can be wreckage of the moment, the relationship, a life. Only you can say where the road goes for one. You set your goals for the hour, for the relationship, for that phase of your life. One can feel at times like a spinning leaf blown along a dirty street. One can feel like a grain of sand stuck in one place. But nobody has said that life was a calm and orderly thing. It isn't. One isn't a tattered leaf nor a grain of sand. One can, to greater or lesser degree, draw his own road map and follow it. One can feel that things are such now that as much too too late to do anything, that one's past road is so messed up that there's no chance of drawing a future that will be any different. There is always a point on a road when one can map a new one and then try to follow that map. There is no person alive who cannot make a new beginning. It can be said without the slightest fear or contradiction that others may mock one and seek by various means to push one onto the verge, the edge, in other words, off the edge, to tempt one in various ways to lead an immoral life. All such persons do, they do so to accomplish private ends of their own, and one will wind up if one heeds them in tragedy and sorrow. Of course, one will have occasional losses trying to apply this book, and in trying to get it applied. One should just learn from these and carry on. Who said the road doesn't have bumps? It can still be traveled, so people can fall down. doesn't mean they can't get up again and keep going. If one keeps the edges on the road, one can't go far wrong. True excitement, happiness, and joy come from other things, not from broken lives. If you can get others to follow the road, you yourself will be free enough to give yourself a chance to discover what real happiness is. The way to happiness is a high-speed road to those who know where the edges are. You're the driver. Farewell. That's the book. This is The Way to Happiness, written by L. Ron Hubbard in 1981. Pick up a paper. If you know these precepts, 21 precepts that I read to you, you can go, well, this is where this guy went wrong. He's in violation of, oh, let's see, uh, six people died from a disease passed around at a coffee house. That's number one. Take care of yourself. Get care when you are ill. Or let's see, three people killed and head-on crash, drugs and alcohol involved. Number two, be temperate. Do not take harmful drugs. You can see literally violations on a daily basis, on the radio, on the television, in the newspaper. And these violations can cost people's lives. 
if nothing else, their livelihood, the respect of society and their loved ones to them. The thing here, ladies and gentlemen, is that I wanted to impart to you is that if you if you yourself followed this stuff, if you yourself did these, you would be an astounding person and you would be able to survive very well in society. See, here's the thing. I can teach anybody to start a fire in the woods. I can teach anybody to store food. I can teach anybody to clean your car, tune your car, clean your house, do anything. That's the mechanical aspect of survival. But these things here is basically the day-to-day meat and potatoes of your survival. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I don't want to be sounding like I'm preaching or anything, but this booklet called The Way to Happiness is something that I think everyone should have a copy of. Every single person should have a copy of it. And they should look at it periodically. Ladies and gentlemen, the deck is stacked against us and it's stacked by people who we screwed up and voted in. The best you can do is what you can do for your survival and those you care about. We all have heard the saying, be the change you want to see in the world by Mahatma Gandhi. Except he didn't say that. What Mahatma Gandhi said was, we but mirror the world. All the tendencies present in the outer world are to be found in the world of our body. If we could change ourselves, the tendencies in the world would also change. As a man changes his own nature, so does the attitude of the world change towards him. This is the divine mystery supreme. A wonderful thing it is, and the source of our happiness. We need not wait to see what others do. Mahatma Gandhi. That's the true quote. And basically what he was saying is that, well, if you want the world to change how it reacts to you, then you have to change how you react to it. And I've said this many times, and this is something that is very important for people to understand. There are angels out there. Each of us can be one of them. With these 21 precepts, we can actually change the lives of people. And I can tell you this right now, this is a survival aspect. You need to understand that for you to survive better and to be more acceptable to the society around you, you, you should uh, participate in this. Anybody out there who wants one, you just ask and I'll give you one of these booklets. You can come into the store in Hayden and I'll give you one of the little pamphlets. It is not religious. It is data that you might or might not have. I also have a video you can watch if you wanted to. And it's really neat. It's put together like a Hollywood movie. This is the interesting thing about life. Not only does this help you personally, does this help you uh, in interpersonal relationships? Yes. But it also helps you to realize others who don't do these precepts are danger to you and, and your society, your family, and your other friends. It's real, real simple. There's many different facets behind this whole thing that I just got done uh, discussing. All right, so we have the uh, CBD still on sale at Survival Enterprises. You can go to cbdsupply.us and you can see all about it. You can read my article there. You can read the links. Go to survivalenterprises.com, se1.us. We have uh, the last batch of Mountain House freeze-dried foods in that we're going to get for the year. They're not going to have any more. They told me till February. But who knows with uh, this government-controlled breakdown of the supply chain. So we have those. The buckets are $110 a piece plus shipping. Then uh, we got all kinds of other stuff. So go to, go to the website if you have any questions. 800-753-1981, 800-753-1981, or 310-295-9686. 
We've got a couple different numbers. So this is the Armchair Survivalist. I hope you learned something today. I hope you listened. And I hope this has all been helpful to you. Keep your nose in the air and your ear to the ground. And unfortunately, keeping your nose in the air is allowing you to smell the stench of the fraud that's being perpetrated by the elite. So uh, good luck, and I'll see you next time.